Merry Christmas. <laughs> Good to see all of you. Or as my mom would say, good to see all y'all in the house. I'm proud that you made it. Uh, it's Christmas. Uh, I'm really excited, not only because you're here for joining us in this series and this kind of build up to these Christmas Eve services Danny was talking about, but I'm really thankful this Christmas for a bunch of things. I'm thankful for the space and thankful for that we're getting ready to celebrate our first Christmas in our own home uh, uh, as a church. And I'm also thankful uh, just for some of the leaders and volunteers and staff members we have around. I didn't have this in my notes, but I just want to specifically honor so many of our team leaders. We got together a few weeks ago on a Saturday to pray and to learn and to grow. And uh, some of you know this, some of you don't, but before you ever get here, before you ever show up, there are hours and hours poured into cleaning and serving and preparing lessons and uh, working on music and all that. So can we just give it up for our volunteers and our staff team this Christmas? I am really, really thankful. Uh, I am not that great, so I need a lot of good people around me, and that is what I feel like this Christmas. It's just brought up for me again. It's like, wow, we have an incredible... Uh, team. Uh, Christmas is fun too because families get together. Uh, maybe that's not fun for you, <laughs> but for me, that's a fun time because uh, it's rare that our family, because we're kind of spread out geographically around America, uh, gets in the same room together. And Christmas is one of those unique times. And I'm the oldest of four kids. And Lindsay, my wife, is also the oldest of four kids. Uh, and now that we have one child who is by de facto kind of the oldest, I get it. I get why my parents had such a problem with me because I'm, I'm aggressive, I'm independent, and that's how Lindsay grew up, and that's how Lennon is apparently growing up too. So pray for me. I need your help. But it's funny because uh, we frequently will swap like oldest child only stories. I don't know if you, any oldest kids in the room, like you're the eldest sibling. Okay. Oh, perfect. So I'm going to preach to you for a minute. Uh, it was funny because... Uh, all of her stories are very similar to mine in that oldest children have unique power that the, the children that follow them don't have. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a uniqueness to being the oldest. And she told me this story this last week, which I at first I was like, that's made up. That's not a real story. You're, you're too nice for that story. And, uh, but it's in fact a true story. And if you go through our genealogy and family tree, this story would check out. So she has her youngest brothers named Blaze. They're a couple years apart. And Blaze at the time, I think it was two or three, this is Lindsay and Blaze together, two or three years old. And, and obviously Lindsay has beautiful dark hair and she needed a brush. And she thought it, it would be wise as an oldest sibling to pay her younger siblings to brush her hair for her. Okay. So she, she gets Blaze together uh, and says, Hey, Blaze, guess what? If you will brush my hair for just 10 minutes, like 10 minutes is all I'm asking for. I will pay you a dollar. Okay, so he's like, he's two or three years old, a dollar, might as well be a million dollars. He's like, oh my gosh, okay, that, that's the best deal I've ever heard. So, so they begin, she sits in like the living room chair and he gets the brush out and starts to brush through Lindsay's hair. And he's like, has it been 10 minutes yet? She's like, oh no, you're not even close to 10 minutes. Like you gotta keep going, keep going. Well, Blaze can't tell time, okay? He has no idea how long it's been. So an hour goes by. <laughs> And Lindsay still has not paid up, right? So he's like, has it been, has it been 10 minutes yet? And she's like, no, it hasn't been 10 years. I don't, he may still be brushing her hair in his mind. I don't know. Like he, he was clearly deceived in the moment. I don't know if she ever paid him. I don't know how. And I'm not going to share any stories of when I was the oldest because you would all hate me and think I'm a terrible person. So I'm sharing hers. I'm throwing her under the bus this morning. Officially, that's what I just did. But it's funny because 
Uh, even as an oldest child, I didn't think about some of the power I wielded over my younger siblings. And if you have oldest kids in your own family right now, you're like, yeah, they don't understand that either, the influence that they have. Well, I want to look at uh, kind of Jesus's family tree again. I want to take another kind of almost closer look at Jesus's genealogy that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or, or way to get to the scriptures, go to Matthew 1. Uh, last week, we talked about Matthew 1.1, which Matthew just kind of lays out for all of us. Here's the genealogy of Jesus the King. But in verse 3 and then in verse 6, there's some names that would have jumped off the page because to the Israelite people, these names we're about to read were scandalous. They were names and stories that if your family had them, you would sweep them under the rug and pretend they weren't there. They're stories you would not share at Christmas. They're not stories you'd be proud of. You're not posting anything on Facebook about these kinds of stories. And in verse 3, here's what Matthew writes. He says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Red flag number one, if you're reading this as a Jewish person. Number, let's go to the second one. So verse 6. Jesse, the father of King David, which he goes on and says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Doesn't even put a name there, but if you kind of backwards read, I and mean, if you know the Old Testament a little bit, you know that Uriah's wife is a reference to Bathsheba. It's this woman who David has this adulterous affair with, and we're going to get into why that story uh, matters for us today. But uh, what you can get, you don't even have to know all these stories to get that through this genealogy, that being in a family just like yours is complicated. Whether you're the youngest or oldest, the power dynamics in family can sometimes make something like Christmas great and awesome. And for others of us, it makes Christmas incredibly difficult. Maybe your Christmas party got disrupted already due to, to COVID or someone having to quarantine or people aren't at Christmas because they're either in jail or they don't agree with who you voted for or they're feeling like they're getting sick so they're not coming. Like there's all of these reasons even Christmas can get complicated. And Matthew's genealogy, the way he starts this and why we're reading it multiple weeks in a row is a reminder that in God's family, there even were scandals. There were scandals that the Jewish people the Israelite family, God's people themselves would like to ignore. And so uh, I'm not going to take you there, but I want you just to listen to the story. This story is straight out of Genesis 38, and this is Tamar's story. So Tamar is a name, like I said, most Jewish people would want to forget. It was a name that when they saw it in the genealogy, would have made you kind of bristle a little. It, make, it have the, the, definitely had the cringe factor in this. I mean, Tamar, they're like, why would you put her... In there, yet in this genealogy, she is the wife of a man named Ur, one of two sons of Judah. The scandalous part is that these sons were the result of an adulterous relationship Judah had with another Canaanite woman. Er, also her husband, was not a good husband and died. When he died, what something that would happen in Israelite custom was essentially the wife would get not passed on, but would be kind of entrusted to the next sibling down. So in this case, that was a, a guy named Onan. He was the next oldest brother, wasn't married, uh, but he doesn't really want to have kids with Tamar, does not want to marry her. I don't blame him. That's a weird system. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Uh, but that was kind of the system. That was the cultural norm. But in a greedy attempt, he tries to set up Tamar for this greater inheritance. He refuses to conceive with Tamar, which would have been normal, right? We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that women, especially in Israelite culture, dating back thousands of years, was to carry children, was continue the family line. Well, he doesn't want to do that. 
And so long story short, a very explicit story, PG-13 at the very least story short, uh, Onan dies. <laughs> so I'm going to put it that way. You can go read it in Genesis 38. We don't have time to unpack all of the weirdness of that story, but, but he ends up dying. So the next thing down will be, okay, who's the next younger brother? So Tamar is obviously going to be a part of that uh, marriage. So Tamar waited and waited. She waits for Judah, this dad, to give the youngest son over, but it doesn't happen. Judah is reluctant. He believed because Onan had died and other people in her story had had some jacked up things happen that Tamar was clearly cursed. Like no one should be married to this girl. She is killing people. It's weird. There's a messed up story here. And so he decides I'm going to withhold a husband from Tamar. So Tamar, maybe like you would if you're in this situation, knowing how much cultural pressure is on you, takes matters in her own hands. She decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to dress up like a prostitute and I'm going to go to the city gate and I'm going to try to get Judah, my potential father-in-law, to sleep with me and conceive a son. Is this weird to anybody else? Okay. This is the Bible. None of your life verses are in Genesis 38. I'm pretty sure. But this is a story. This is God's family tree. These are the people Matthew includes. What happens because Judah abuses power and is not leading with integrity in his family. He ends up sleeping with, with Tamar, thinking that she's a prostitute. Well, he finds this out. He finds out she's pregnant. And then he decides, well, I mean, it's clearly her fault. She should have not have tricked me and she should have remained chaste until she had actually had a legit husband. And so he tries to kill Tamar, tries to, he comes up with his plot to kill this woman. This, this is real. I mean, this is hard for me to picture, but this is Genesis 38 through and, and through. So eventually she bears a son and one of these sons, Perez, who's listed also in this genealogy, becomes an ancestor of King David and eventually King Jesus. These are the kind of people Jesus includes in the family tree. These are the kind of people who Matthew thinks it's important for you and I to grasp kind of the breadth and the redemption and grace of God in. And what's, what's shocking about these stories is over and over again, you have people in the story, people like Judah, even some of the brothers who could have used their power to love and to sacrifice and to serve, but end up using their power to take advantage of other people to harm literally other people, to create chaos in their family line. But I know my family. I know some of your families. And you may be uh, brand new and you're like, oh yeah, you're talking about me here. In our families, here's what ends up happening. Power is currency. The, the, the fact that I have a role or I've got influence. But in God's family, I mean, you read this in Matthew 1. In God's family, love is currency. Redemption is is currency, the freedom he offers, forgiveness ends up being currency. And I, I know what you're probably thinking. You're like, John, I don't have power. I'm not the CEO. I'm not the president. I'm not the pastor. I don't have spiritual authority. I'm not, I'm not any of those things. Number one, that's wrong. You do have power. And number two, power, all it really is, is, is asking the question, is there anyone in my life who listens to what I say and takes an example or follows after what I will do? If you can answer yes to either one of those, you have some level of power. Now, that may be over a spouse. It may be over kids God's given you or grandkids. It may be over employees or even just people in your division or department. All of us have power. And in our families, what tends to happen, even in our culture, what tends to happen is power becomes what we trade with. Well, I'm your boss. I tell you what to do. I'm your spouse. I'm going to tell you what to do. You are my kids. I'm going to tell you what to do. And God is saying power is really not how the kingdom of God moves forward. 
It's actually love. It's forgiveness. It's freedom. It's, it's very, very counterintuitive, which is why I would like to reread some of these stories in the Old Testament and think, well, yeah, Israel had great leaders, right? I mean, King David, great example, wrote the bulk of the Psalms. Is talked about as a man after God's own heart. I would love that title. I don't know if you would love it. I would love that title. That would be an honorable thing to have read in my, uh, my kind of obituary at the end of my life. But, but David had some really jacked up things in his story too. Uh, one of those is the example Matthew gives us is this incredibly broken, evil even story in 2 Samuel 11. You can go and read it. If you don't know this part of scripture yet, Bathsheba is a woman who, in the moment, she's going onto a rooftop. She goes up to the rooftop, which was customary for women. Uh, There's a regularity to this kind of ritual cleansing that women needed to do that men did not need to do. And so she's up on the rooftop where everyone in the city would have bathed because it's the most private, if you think about it. Well, the only house that had a vantage point, the only palace that had a vantage point above kind of where everyone else lived, guess who? It was the king. He had the vantage point. And so he sees this woman get onto this rooftop. He doesn't stay in the lower part. He doesn't go to bed. He gets up on top of the roof and he watches her. And and this evil kind of lust and brokenness starts to rise up in David. And he says, I'm going to use my power. I'm going to abuse my authority and my leadership and I'm going to get her. So he sends somebody. She, She comes to the palace for fear of death. If she did not comply with the king's demands, She sleeps with him. He eventually tries to cover it up by killing her husband. I mean, all of this stuff is is there. It really was. I mean, if you look through Israel's history, this is probably the greatest scandal of Israel's kind of kings or leaders that you can find. Most of us, though, think about this story in terms of David. It's like, oh, man, he messed up. Hopefully, uh, Maybe if I mess up, God will treat me like he did David. He's a man after God's own heart. Psalm 51, this beautiful confession. And sometimes we skip over the fact that Bathsheba, her story is ruined after this because of the way that someone used power. It's likely that when David calls for her to come from her house, she had no choice. There wasn't like she engaged in some consensual affair. It was, it was rape at best. It was evil. It was dark. It was broken. And one of the most twisted parts of this story, the fact that that Bathsheba herself, she was a granddaughter of one of David's closest inner circle. David knew what he was doing in this moment. See, in our families, that's sometimes how we work, though. You're like, I've never done anything like that. But have you ever used power for yourself? Have you ever let your selfish agenda rise up? Like, I'm not understating the fact that David clearly sins. He does exploit Bathsheba, but ultimately this is about him using his power to get what he wanted. It's not putting the God's kingdom first. It was putting his kingdom first. I mean, Bathsheba, her story is, is marred. It's, it's tainted after this, even though she really did nothing wrong. Her story would have been one that spread throughout Israel because she was the wife now of an unfaithful king named David. And yet here she is in, in Matthew's story, this beautiful story of redemption and grace and the favor of God. She's listed in Jesus's family tree. And Uriah's wife is not because Matthew didn't know her name. It's because he wanted people to remember the fact that there was a big, broken, dark story that God was redeeming even in her family tree. See, in our family's power ends up being currency, but in God's family, the, the beauty really of Christmas is that love is currency. 
Love is the way the kingdom moves forward. I'm not telling you something you don't already know. I'm telling you something that a lot of us don't really live. Like we say that's important, but we get swept into cultural narratives about what power is and how to, how to move society forward. I mean, one of the, the kind of cultural ideas, if I can just give you a practical example of this, uh, put your thinking caps on for a moment. I'm going to take you back about a hundred years. This German psychologist uh, comes up with what is now referred to as critical theory, or you may have heard of it. It's like critical race theory in our culture. We've talked, there's a lot of conversation about this. There's a lot of debate about this. But, but fundamentally, critical theory sees the world through the lens of power. It sees the world as oppressed and oppressor, victim and victimizer, powerful and powerless. That's the primary way it sees the world. Why that's so broken is because it doesn't factor in the fact that actually in God's kingdom, his desire for us is not that we would see the world through the lens of power. It's that we would see the world through the lens of love. It's completely different. And even though society's trying to figure out, even right now, like actively, there's probably people on your Facebook feed fighting about this right now while you're here in church. But there's an active conversation about how do you move the world forward? And a lot of us, it comes down to discussions about who has power and who does not. But even in this family tree, I'm just reminded that that's not the way the world moves forward. The way the world moves forward towards God's vision is through people like you taking love seriously, taking the power we have, even though we may feel like you don't have a lot and using it to sacrifice and serve other people. Let me give you a list of this. This sometimes helps me just com- compare the two between the difference with power and love. Power says, you sacrifice for me. Love says, I will sacrifice for you. Uh, power says, I have to look out for myself. I have to take care of my needs, my agenda, my kingdom. But love, when you look at the world through the lens of love, it actually says, I will look out for you. Like, I exist to serve you. I exist to lay down my life for you. Uh, The third is one that stings for me. Power looks at the lens of of, of my world and our world through, I need to control or it won't work out. I need to micromanage and fix it and lead it and have my hands around it tight enough or it won't work out. But the, the lens of love, how God sees this world and how even his family tree would be echoing for us to see the world, I cannot control. Tamar can't control. Bathsheba can't control. Uh, on some level, maybe David and Judah felt like they couldn't control. But at the end of the day, God is working it out. He, he, he literally, literally illustrates through these names that God is in the business of redemption and forgiveness. One of the passages that literally makes me emotional when I read it is Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is this beautiful uh, hymn. It's, it's really the first hymn of the church that we know of. And in that passage, you can go and read this later today. In that passage, it literally Paul's right into the Philippian church saying, here's how power works. You want to see how power works? This is what Jesus does with power. He lays it down. And, and what does he take up? Not a sword, not even a crown. Even though he is a king, what Jesus takes up is love. It's a cross. Jesus takes up sacrifice and lays down his divine privileges, his, his rights, his freedoms, and says, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to lay down my life for those who do not deserve it. Paul writes then to the Galatian church. You can read this, Galatians 5. He, he talks about, do not use your freedom to indulge your Flesh is the word he uses. Don't use this to kind of build up your own power and trust structure, but instead 
Lay down your freedom to serve others. Lay down your freedom. Use your power, essentially, to make sure other people can get free too. It's exactly what Danny invited us to pray earlier. Don't, don't be, just be glad that you have a relationship with Jesus, but be aware, live with that annoying kind of nagging awareness that there are other people in your world you interact with every single day who do not have that, who do not have that hope, who do not have that grace, who have yet to experience that redemption. That's why this family tree hits me because I can see myself in Judah and David as, as powerful and abusing that power. And I can see myself in Tamar and Bathsheba as being someone who's sometimes the victim of evil and brokenness and, and your sin and my sin in this world. And we are often prone to think that we're only the victim when, when so many times we're actually the victimizer. We're taking advantage of people with our power. See, it's easy. And this is easy for you as much as it is for me. It's easy to want God's love, to heal and restore and make new people like Tamar and Bathsheba. But when you have Judah and David's in your life, that's when God will really test how much do you really love people? Do you want the Judah's and the David's to be redeemed? That's the backwards reality of God's kingdom. It works for people I don't like. It works for people that I find difficult to love. It works for people in my family tree who I want to sweep under the rug and, and make sure the scandal never comes back to light. That's who God has come for. That's, that's the beauty of John 3, right? God so loved the world he gave. Even when the world was in rebellion against him, he laid down his life. So to the son-in-law you despise, God so loved. To the coworker who betrayed you and cheated you, God so loved. To the leader who abused their authority, abused their power, maybe, maybe you're that person. Can I just tell you, God so loved. To the high schooler addicted to her vape pen and to her social media image, God so loved. It's the people who we feel like are least likely that that refrain just echoes over our world. God so loved. Love. When we begin to see the world through the lens of love instead of power, God's family, his kingdom, his, his, his vision for our world, it grows and moves forward. Uh, some of you would be familiar in scripture with the greatest commandment, right? And, and just shout it out. If you know what, what is Jesus' greatest commandment, there's two parts of it. What is it? Yeah, love God and love other people. If you really summed it down, that's what it is. But I, uh, this is telling you how bad of a Bible scholar I am, often I read that passage and I think those are two separate commands. Love God on one side and then over here is loving people. So sometimes I love God and sometimes I love people. Rarely do they happen simultaneously, at least in my life. I don't know how your life is, but, but loving God and loving other people. Here's what's true about why Jesus says this. You can get into the text and find that actually what Jesus is doing here is kind of employing a very, very common rabbinical device. As a teacher, he would have been teaching them that the way you know the first truth is true is if the second truth is also true. So it's not that you can love God and hate your neighbor. It actually means that the way God tests and, and, and finds out the quality of your love for him is how you love the people in your life. Not all your neighbors are great, I'm assuming. <laughs> Not all your neighbors are nice. Not all your neighbors think the way you do and worship the way you do and spend their weekends the way you do. But that's, that's the invitation from the Lord. If you really want to know how loving God is going, look at how you're loving the people in your life. Loving God 
through or via loving your neighbor. I was thinking about this for our church too. Like, to be honest, uh, we're sitting here gathered, you're gathered online, maybe at home. Center Church, to be honest, may never be the most powerful church in our community. We may never have the biggest building. We may never have the most money. We may never have the most people. You're definitely not ever going to have the best looking pastor. You may never have the most chairs or the biggest social media reach or most watched sermons of any church in the community. But you know what we can be? The most loving. We can all decide today, if you want, to be the most loving church in our community. It has nothing to do with seats, has nothing to do with pastors, has nothing to do with sermons or streaming online. It has everything to do with whether or not we decide to see the world through the lens of power or the lens of love. And in God's family, love is how it moves forward. Uh, two beautiful examples of this happening, even this Christmas. I had a, a meeting this week. And in this meeting, a dad was sitting there and talking about his desire just for his kids to grow and his kids to learn faith and and to learn how to navigate school as a Christian kid. Like, how do you do that? That is not easy. If you have kids, you're in that journey. And he was sharing just some some creative ways that he was going to change the conversation at the school drop-off line. He was going to be intentional with the conversations he was having with his teenage daughter about faith, about how to live that out in her school environment. You want to talk about living through the lens of love? That's it. That's, that's teaching our kids to do that. A second example is someone in a small group, even tonight, uh, partnered with Minios, said, hey, Minios, would you be willing to let uh, to kind of point people in the direction of our church? We're going to bake a ton of Christmas desserts, and we're going to smack a bunch of Center Church invite cards onto the plates. Would you point people to there so we can give away free dessert, and we can give away these invite cards to reach more people in the community? Great idea. But what that ultimately is using power. It's using what little influence we have. It's reaching out to a business owner and saying, hey, can, would you be willing just to point people down the sidewalk a few times? Like, would you be willing to do that? To, to love the people who are in front of us. In front of us. You know, some of you know I love history. And one of the names that always stirs me when I read about him, and I'm in seminary right now, so I've been reading a lot of him, is a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know that. Some of you have read his biography. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the time of the, of the Nazi movement really rising in Poland and specifically in Germany, uh, he was a pastor. And at the time, German pastors had to face, will you submit to the government and where it's headed, which eventually was Hitler and, and the, all of the things that are attached to that movement, or are, are you going to renounce your faith? Are you going to renounce your pastoral credentials? Are you just going to give up your churches? Bonhoeffer's struck with this dilemma. He's not sure what to do. So he ends up uh, doing what some people did at the time in Europe. They relocated to America. So he finds himself in New England, trying to lead a church, trying to be a pastor and figure all this out. While he knows that at home, his German brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling, just like you and I would in that time. They're trying to figure out how do we move forward in faith? How do we move God's vision, his kingdom forward? This feels like an impossible task. So Bonhoeffer feels convicted. So he actually ends up packing all of his things and moving back to Poland, back to where he was from. And instead of like figuring out a way to kind of work, like I'm going to kind of be a German pastor. I'm going to kind of support the Nazis, but kind of not. He just says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to literally start an underground training center for pastors. 
And so pastors from Europe start flocking all over to the small community in rural Poland. And he begins like with this kind of community center, big house thing where they're living together and serving together. And he's teaching them theology, teaching them the Bible. And his friends are like, you move back to do that. <laughs> like, you should do way more important things. Like the Nazis are rising up. That's what you think is the most important thing. You're going to start a little mini seminary in your house. And so this guy comes and visits Bonhoeffer in this small town in Poland. And he's just, he's so confused. He's like, why are you doing this? And Bonhoeffer, being a very stoic, but, but very profound guy, says, hop in this canoe with me, <laughs> which not how I would answer that conversation, but that's how he did it. So he hops in, they cross the Oder River, and he says, let's go up this hill. So they slowly kind of hike up this hill. And his friend is so confused. He's like, I came all this way. I wanted to talk with you and figure out why you're doing this. And you're putting me in a canoe. We're crossing this river. We're climbing up this hill. And at the top of this hill, here's what he sees. A massive Nazi airship, really a training center for pilots who would fight uh, against America, fight against the forces that were coming in to try to stop the Nazi movement. And he says, you know why we need to do what I'm doing? You know why God has called me to do this? Because our love has to be stronger than that. Our way of doing things, our way of moving the world forward has to be more formed and more resilient and more strong in us than what they are doing here. Than, than how they are training and raising up people to fight the world, fight, fight with the way the world always wants to fight, which is through power and authority and and, and strength. He says, our, our strength is different than that. That's why at the end of Bonhoeffer's life, he finds himself in a Nazi prison camp. He dies weeks before the liberation. He's killed in the camp. And I think about that story a lot. I think about what we're doing here. We are not just meeting on Sundays. We are training up one another in love so that we can reach a world full of Tamars and Bathshebas and Davids and Judas and John Gorvets and people just like you. That's why we do it. That's why we give ourselves to it. That's why we sacrifice and serve and lay our power down and take up love. So I just wanna ask you that simple question. Today, this Christmas, a couple weeks left in the year, where's God inviting you? Where's God inviting you to, to lay down power? And where today, maybe you already know, where do you need to take up love today? Is it with a spouse? Is it with a kid? Is it with a coworker? Is it with someone you don't know? Is it, who is it? Where do you need to take up love and to use your role, use your position to love the people in front of you? Honestly, uh, Danny shared earlier, that's why we're kind of chasing after this big goal of seeing 200 names here at Christmas Eve, 200 stories for them to hear the gospel. It's really not about a number. To me, that number feels too big. Like we can't, we're not gonna have 200 people here on Christmas. There's no way. And I think God gave us and our team, our leaders that number, not to kind of stroke our ego or make us feel good about Christmas Eve, but because the potential and the harvest is that great. And there's that many people that you and I interact with every single day. If we took those invite cards or we grabbed a couple extra and, every, and at least one of those people came, that goal would easily be met. So it's not a question of can it be met? It's a question of will. Will we do this? Will we take up love and, and take a relational risk to invite someone into that? So I wanna pray for us in, in that journey. I wanna pray for you. You may re resonate with this story. This may feel personal for you. And I wanna just remind you again that the grace 
and forgiveness and redemption of God can be your story this Christmas too. This is not about people who already have it figured out and are already in the family. It's the fact that God is inviting you in there too. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you right now just aware of our need, aware of the fact that no matter where we are in our stories, that today our marriage needs your redemption and grace. Maybe it's our past, whether it's abuse or violence or shame or regret, that God, you want to free us and heal us and that redemption and grace is possible there too. Maybe for us, God, we'd sit here today and this is not our first Christmas. This isn't our first Christmas Eve service. This, this is just part of the routine and we become spiritually bored and apathetic about you. And we're just confessing that we need even your redemption and grace to stir us back to life again. To draw us into the things you have, to draw us to be people who take up love. And God, I pray for us as a church, would you in these next couple weeks, mobilize us, equip us, empower us. Uh, some of us need a spiritual kick in the rear. You need to move us to, to bring us to the point where we are urgently pursuing lost people, where we are not content to work alongside of people who do not have eternity secured, secured with you. So God, stir us, give us passion, give us drive, give us motivation, help us to see the needs around us because that's what you do. You so loved, you laid everything down. And the good news of Christmas is that you keep doing that. So we thank you, God. We love you. We surrender to you. It's your name we praise. It's your name that we need. It's your name we long for. And so we just give it all to you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, church? Let's worship his name together.